What We Consume. Ahoy ahoy and welcome to What We Consume, a podcast about all the things we put into our mind and body. Today we're going to be discussing The Thing. With me as always is Kevin. Hey everybody. How's how's everybody doing? Hope you're ready for a great episode. Ready to hear about some weird stuff. We're going to be discussing The Thing. Now there's the original novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. The Thing from Another World, which was produced in 1951, and John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Now, the 1982 movie is one of my favorite horror movies ever made. The paranoia, the cold, and the gore all come together in a very intense and memorable experience. Having said that, I'd never seen the other media about The Thing. I think that John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 works perfectly well on its own, but for this we decided to watch both that and the original The Thing from Another World. I also watched the 2011 prequel. It's not great, so we won't be talking about it much. I also read the original novella, and I'll be dropping in some interesting tidbits here and there. I have not read the full Frozen Hell, because it was only discovered a few years ago and I couldn't get a hold of that one. Oh, I also have not read the comics or played the 2002 game, though I did want to. So we'll start with Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World from 1951. In a press release, Hawks Hawks held after acquiring the rights to Who Goes There, Hawks stated, The advent of this type of film opens a vast story market. Because the subject matter is involved with that which is unknown, science fiction stories permit the use of new and different plot structures in the writing of screenplays. Clever writing enables one to hold interest by the presentation of a scientific background, which adds a lot of authenticity to the story as it progresses. It is important that we don't confuse the Frankenstein-type film with the science fiction pictures, Cox continued. The first film is an out-and-out horror thriller based on that which is impossible. The science fiction film is based on that which is unknown, but given credibility by the use of scientific facts, which parallel that which the viewer is asked to believe. Forgetting that almost every Hollywood studio has at least one science fiction story in its production agenda, one needs only check the growing popularity of the science fiction magazines to learn of the ever-increasing demand for this type of literature. Now, even though The Thing from Another World was successful, this was the only science fiction film that Howard Hawks ever produced, so I thought that quote was kind of an interesting way to start. So, Kevin, how about you give us the premise of this movie? The, the premise... Oh my, uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, I mean, basically, peep, they're in what, it's Antarctica, right? This one takes place at the North Pole, we talk, unlike, we, uh, we're talking about the, the 1982 one. Okay, okay, the 51 there at the North Pole, well, before that, were, were they at, like, Anchorage or something, and then they fly to yeah. the North Pole? Anchorage is a whole nother thing. I hope we talk about that and the fucking close the door thing and, and I, that got on my nerves. Anyway, they they're in the army. They're in Anchorage. They fly. They get a mission to fly to the North Pole, and when they're there, they run into some trouble because when they go out to like this big place where supposedly the spaceship crashed, they found something. They blow it up. They bring the thing back and then the thing gets loose and then the thing goes crazy and things happen and then other stuff happens and it's all right good enough <laughs> yeah i just wanted to spring that on you to see what you do there's a there's a lot of there's uh, a lot of details in in between all of that but 
Yeah, yeah, and we'll get that. We'll get to those. For some background, the Roswell incident, as it's widely known, occurred in 1947, sparking renewed interest in extraterrestrials, especially in Hollywood. In 1951, the top-grossing movies was uh, Quo Vadis. Uh, it grossed 11 million dollars, which is roughly 122 million adjusted for inflation. An American in Paris won the Academy Award for Best Film, as well as the Golden Globe for Best Comedy Slash Musical. Laurel and Hardy appeared in their final film, Atoll K. The first use of the Wilhelm scream appeared in Distant Drums. The House of Un-American Activities Committee investigation into communism started really ramping up. A streetcar named Desire and African Queen were both performing well at the box office. As far as science fiction goes, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Man from Planet X, Flight to Mars, and our first subject, The Thing from Another World, all came out this year. The Thing from Another World beat all the other science fiction movies of the year, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I found interesting because that one's a lot more well-known to me. But they both were deemed culturally significant films by the U.S. Library of Congress. Time Magazine would consider The Thing from Another World the greatest 1950s sci-fi movie in 2008. I can... So this is a... I can see that, uh, though. Like... I, I can see oh, crap. I already forgot the other movie that you were just talking about. That's uh, the day of the earth. Stood yeah. Still. I, I've, I, I watched that and I can see why the thing people like the thing a lot more. Like I don't, I don't mind that movie, but I, I do think the thing is a lot better. Yeah. This is a pretty loose adaptation of the original novella. The parts of the beginning are fairly accurate. The crew discovers the flying saucer and the passenger, albeit under slightly different circumstances. They attempt to melt the ice with thermite, ultimately destroying the ship and hauling the passenger back in a block of ice. The thing is completely different from described in the novella. In the novella, it has three red eyes, blue skin, tentacles, and, quote, blue worm-like hair. So it was definitely a thing. Whereas this is basically a man in like a Frankenstein costume yeah. almost. It was really interesting to me that they went for like a man instead of trying to make a full monster. Uh, I honestly, I thinking back to the fifties, they could have done that very easily. Like they could have done something weird. Like you know, there was puppetry. There was all, there was all types of things. It, it was very interesting that they went for just a man. Well, supposedly the original script by uh, Charles Lederer uh, had the thing look more like the original description, but the budget couldn't allow it. Allegedly, there was test footage featuring a creature, creature with, with the earlier design played by a one-legged man. I couldn't find the footage, so I couldn't verify. James Arness, who plays the thing in this movie, hated his costume. He claimed it made him look like a giant carrot, and he refused to go the premiere out of embarrassment. <laughs> Oh, dude, that's uh, a, he, I bet I bet he regrets that because once it's edited and everything, you don't even like you can't you, you can't even tell. He's just like darkness, and I mean, obviously he's a big man, but like you can't you know you can't see anything. Yeah, did you watch the uh, black and white version or the recolored version? The black and white. I couldn't find a color version. I ended up watching both. I was able to find uh, the colored version. I can't remember where, but um, but I watched them both. The colored version is very pretty, like the the white ver- the white of the snow versus like the green of the alien and like the turquoise of the ship and 
all of it comes together really well. A lot of pastel colors. Did it make it like, I, I know when I was, when you're watching the black and white version, just because it's in black and white, it felt like it was a lot more suspenseful to me because it was in black and white. Like, I don't know. I don't, did it, did they make it feel suspenseful with the vibrant colors that they were using? I, I also think the black and white version was a little bit more suspenseful. It also like, because like, because you've just got those two colors, I mean, it, it kind of like lets things blend in, in the background. And if they had gone for the, um, for the like shape shifting aspect or like more jump scares, it probably would have been very, you know, like suddenly out of nowhere, but I don't know. I thought both were fine. I, yeah, I think the black and white version was a little bit scarier. Yeah. I kind of like, I know people wouldn't like it now, but if they made a movie, a newer movie that had black and white tendencies to it, I think you could make it very suspenseful in that way because it's easy to just like film, you know, dark and blackness. But when you do black and white, it's just, it builds something different. It's sad that we like went away from that rather than trying to use it and build around it. Well, every now and then a new movie will come out featuring black and white, like uh, The Artist, I think was 2012, and um, Mad Max... Fury Road, a very colorful movie, um, also had a black and white version. So, at, like every couple of years, someone does a black and white movie. But I think it, I think part of the problem is just like it, it makes the movie feel older, and it also is a little bit harder to immerse yourself because we see in color. Yeah. Before filming began, Howard Hawks asked the U.S. Air Force uh, for assistance in making the film, but was refused because the official stance of the U.S. government at the time was that UFOs do not exist, and they didn't want to... They, they didn't want anyone, like, thinking they were involved, you know? Oh, that I mean, that makes sense. If you're going to deny, you better go all the way. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to bring up was the romantic subplot between Kenneth Toby's Captain Patrick Hendry and uh, Margaret Sheridan's Nikki Nicholson. This was Sheridan's film debut, her only real notable role. She was signed on to a five-picture deal, including possibly being the lead, uh, the female lead of uh, Red River, but she became pregnant, so the role went to Joanne Drew. Most of her roles ended up being on television, and she ended up leaving Hollywood to raise her family in 1955, which is a bummer, because honestly, I think she was the, like, the best actor in this, like, I think she gave the best performance in this movie. Yeah, I thought she was great. I think that whole, the whole thing around him and her, and even his group of friends that were teasing him about her, all of that made the movie very enjoyable to watch I, honestly if that wasn't in there i don't know if i would have enjoyed it because i thoroughly enjoyed all the wittiness between them like you can definitely tell that it's dated with how they talk to each other and interact like female to male but the acting and just them interacting with each other felt very good and genuine to me like i i enjoyed it and it, i ch chuckled often yeah, I, I 
I wasn't a big fan of the romance. It felt kind of just like tacked on because like you're, it, it's a movie, you're supposed to have romance in it. But I did like the way they portrayed Nikki. She was a secretary working at a remote Arctic research station, but she never comes off as like a damsel in distress. She never gets in the way. She, she also like has gotten bet- the better of Hendry previously and like didn't cower to his machismo when he comes in like pretty upset about their last encounter and like... She doesn't get swept off her feet by him either. She's intelligent and perceptive while also wanting another chance for her and Hendry to be together. Like, uh, she's the first person to notice that they can see their breath because the temperature's dropping because the thing cut the power. Like, she wants to go with Hendry at one point and he's not on this one. She's like, all right. Like, she, she doesn't even, like, argue against it. She's just like, yep, this, this is not my thing. This is a military man show now. Yeah, and most of... Uh, 50s movies like older 50s or even 40s and stuff most of them they do have like even if it's a strong female character what like uh even gone with the wind she's supposed to be a strong female character but she still seems like a damsel in distress even though she's not supposed to be uh it's very like you saying that brought it to my mind very clear and she is definitely more of a character that would go go along with our current like how our current films are going rather than how they went back then yeah and uh she's also got that one scene where like he wants to come talk to her so she ties him up she doesn't do a very good job and he escapes but but i just thought that was like interesting like she like she's like yeah you know you can't just push your weight around around here you gotta you gotta work on my rules too yeah i so so i just i i just really liked her character the the romance didn't really do much for me but like i'm i'm glad it was there because it meant she got her screen time and uh, she was wonderful yeah i mean even honestly i didn't take it as true romance i took it as i guess uh, romantical banter rather than them actually building a like building a romance in the thing like it's just more of like I don't know I I, I know what I'm trying to say but hopefully it's coming off correct yeah I mean I mean, it certainly starts off that way but then at the end they're like oh you should really marry this girl it's like whoa that's sudden and then like all of his friends are like pushing him and like she's like well I mean like I'd, I'd be down for it uh i mean so i guess it is the 50s Mm -hmm. you wanted to talk about that opening scene right just uh, the 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 close the door thing when he goes in i like i'm assuming it's a joke but i don't know why and it just made me mad yeah it's it's if if i think it was supposed to be played for humor but it's really not that funny it's just like the guy kind of comes across as incompetent for being a leader he's like nobody tells me anything it's like well it doesn't really sound like you're worth telling anything yeah and so do you know what i'm talking about with the close the door thing oh yeah yeah like he yeah like as soon as the door opens he's yelling to close it when like well let me get inside first fuck like it's not like people are leaving the door open yeah it, it was like a long it was like a long burn of a joke to where he first walks in, does it. The another guy walks in, he yells at them, and then he's like going to leave, and he's like, "Oh, and I'll close the door." It's like 
you played that off so long to be like to make that a joke i wonder if it's a i wonder if that's like a 50s thing like that was an inside 50s joke or something i don't know yeah i don't i don't know i mean there's always going to be a, a problem with going back to movies from more than a generation before us is just we we don't have the context of the time for small things like that uh but i can, it, it, if nothing else, it didn't age no. very well, I well, don't think. I guess it could be, now that I'm thinking about it more deeply, I guess it could be to sh- kind of set him up as more incompetent because throughout the time that they continued to call back to his office, he kept saying to not hurt the monster and do things like that because he wanted the credit rather than protecting his people. Yeah, um, this this movie's kind of weird in that, like, it kind of comes off as, like, anti-science, because, oh, clearly, to a, to the people that are there and the people who have interacted with it, that thing needs to die, with the exception of Dr. Carrion, Gar- uh, Dr. Carrington, the, like, head of the scientific side of he's he's i don't care what happens we have to save it we have to talk to it it's smarter than us and i don't know why he thinks it's smarter than them it doesn't really show anything no to indicate that it's it shows a relatively human level intelligence but like i mean i guess it was on a spaceship so i guess you could say that it was smarter because like it had the technology to pilot that spaceship but it also crashed that spaceship so you know yeah i nothing about it seemed all that intelligent there just this whole that whole thing bothered me to where he wanted to where he wanted to save it and talk to it i think it was more out of self-interest than it was out of uh actually caring about science i think he was like, oh, I'm going to get super, super famous off of this. On the other hand, it is the scientific find of the century. I can understand him not wanting to destroy it. But they also don't, like, propose any options of, like, capturing it or anything. It, like, it's just immediately like, no, you can't kill it. We can't hurt it. We have to talk to it. And there's no indication that it can understand or speak human languages. All it does is roar. And... He he thinks like he can just talk to it for no reason. Nothing shows that it should be able to talk or could talk or has any desire to talk, really. Yeah, I think every stage of it, they was just like, I'm going to kill people, basically. Yeah. Now, I mean, he does bring up a good point that there's a possibility that it wasn't uh, intending to harm us and just like he immediately gets shot immediately gets attacked by dogs like he's a stranger in a strange land it it's understandable that he might be scared of us but then like he also slits to the scientists throats so that he could drink their blood or use their blood to grow babies or whatever so that argument kind of loses steam pretty quickly yeah let's talk about what's probably the most famous scene in the movie the kerosene scene because the creature is radioactive, they can tell when it's getting closer based on the um, Geiger counter, which I think is fun. And I'm curious if this inspired uh, James Cameron with the motion trackers in uh, Aliens. 
just because, you know, it's got that slowly ramping up, like, click, 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 kind of indicating, like, when it's getting closer or further away. I, I don't know. That's what it reminded me of, so. So, they know it's coming. It breaks into the room next to theirs. And their plan is... Their plan is to splash it with kerosene and then shoot a flare at it and set it on fire. Which is a pretty wild idea and also just incredible visuals. Roger Ebert would claim that this scene in particular scared him to death. He would say a lot less kind things about John Carpenter's The Thing, but we'll get to that later. This is also, as far as I can tell and from everything I read, I couldn't find anything to refute it. This is the first full body burn by a stunt double in a film, which is nuts. Because, I mean, you can go into even low-budget films today and see people being set on fire. And at this point, it's generally pretty... I mean, it's still got dangers involved, but it's it's a pretty standardized procedure now. So, like, people can get away with it. But, uh... When they did it, Tom Steele, who played the stuntman for James Arnaz, was wearing an asbestos suit with a fiberglass helmet where he was given a 100% oxygen supply, which is incredibly dangerous. I mean, like, it's not good that it was in a, it, that he was in asbestos, but asbestos was very fire retardant, so it was probably the best they could do at the time. Sorry about the cancer later, maybe. Also, just because if there was any sort of leak, he would have been torched. Pure oxygen isn't flammable, but it's an it's an oxidizer, causing it to act as an accelerant, making flames spread faster. Since he was using it to breathe, a leak could have caused the flames to reach his face or sear his lungs, which is just horrifying. Yeah. I honestly don't know what to say. That's... I mean, I guess you gotta start somewhere, right? Somebody's gotta jump in there and do it and make other people try. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you're lighting fireworks on fire and hopefully you don't blow off your hands yeah the only way to go further is to uh try new things and uh, i mean they pulled it off uh as, as far as i know tom Steele didn't receive any injuries and and the scene went off without a hitch but this scene is also scary it's scary in itself even though like it's it's dated but it's a scary scene for sure but it's also scary just thinking about the behind the scenes because you've got that oxygen you've got the dude completely on fire and then they're chucking more gas at him and at one point nikki's hiding in the corner i don't know if it's nikki or like a stunt double or whatever but they straight up throw gasoline at her too (laughs) yeah it's just nuts that's a really small room that they were in as well so i mean they were all basically on top of him while he was on fire yeah this scene had to go pretty perfectly for no one to get seriously injured and as far as i know nobody did so kudos on them for pulling it off but holy shit what a risk i i wonder what the insurance and uh and the safety precautions they would have to do to recreate that like shot for shot today i mean i I bet they i bet it would be really easy today i mean quote unquote easy i would say uh, like i'm sure they could do it but I'm, I'm curious about like the costs and what kind of safety measures they would do uh if they if they would even risk having any of the talent in the scene that didn't need to be uh it's a lot could happen in that did they happen to say if it was one take or did they have to do it multiple times 
I couldn't find anything on that because I looked for it. Um, but as far as I know, it, it was just one. Because I think with a scene like that, you that that room's gonna have evidence of that much of a burn. So I I think it had to be one take, but I'm not positive. Yeah, it's a it's a wild scene to get one take right. It's like that the scene from the Tom Holland movie where they had the one take where they drop all the water down. Uh, mm. I forgot what that I forgot what that movie's called. If there's some tsunami hits when they're in the resort, they had to do one take with that. I have no idea. Like everything's rotting on that one moment because honestly, like besides that moment, the monster has two other really big scenes to where he's really close to them so that's like that's the scene right yeah and the monster only doesn't appear for the first hour of the movie yeah and it's not a very long movie i think it's like an hour and 20 minutes 26 minutes or something like that it, it's it's pretty short. it's pretty brief so the monster appearing i don't know somewhere between 40 minutes and an hour like really there's not much time left for it. So I think that brings us to the uh, the climax. It's it's not a it's not a super great climax in my opinion. What what did you think of it? I thought it ended very quickly and there wasn't I I didn't like it per se. I didn't think there was enough on the line to when it happened. Yeah. He's running down the hallway, and then they uh, electrocute him. But I don't know. It just it didn't feel. It always felt like they were going to get out of it at that point. Like it was always going to work. There was never any suspense for it. Yeah, there there was really the the stakes felt pretty low in this. Uh, I I thought it was kind of funny because like they've they've had this creature locked up. uh, Well in their minds locked in the greenhouse and then when the climax comes he just like opens the door inward yeah <laughs> like, really? he just swings it up he's like ah and then like uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's walking very slow there's not a lot of urgency in this scene and then uh dr carrington shuts off the uh power to the generator and it takes all of 10 seconds to fix they're like, look out, he he shut off the generator. So they all run in the room and like they point a uh, flashlight at him and they're like, look out, he's got a gun. And immediately gets the gun taken away. And they're like, all right, get that power back on. They run all the way back to the monster and the monster's taken like six steps. That brings me to another point to where, could you imagine a heating blanket to melt that much ice in that little time? Oh, yeah, that, it... <laughs> With, like, with the window movie, open movie magic <laughs> yeah the because it's like negative 50 at best down there or uh up there at the north pole at that point uh, i can't remember what numbers they threw out for the temperature but yeah it's that shit's not happening yeah, there's no there's no way the same thing with uh, with the scene at the end there's no way all of that happened that quickly and then the monster hasn't killed everybody one thing to bring up is um, Bob, like he doesn't have a last name, but it's like Airman Bob or whatever. Uh, he asks if the thing can read minds. Like he's just like, wait, what if it can read minds? 
And it's played off the the guy next to him as a tough guy line, like, well, he's going to hate what he hears in mine or whatever. But uh, that's in reference to the novella where the thing can almost definitely read minds, which is why it's able to blend in not just physically, but also socially. Like it, it knows everything about the person that it absorbs. So therefore it can mimic them entirely. Yeah, this thing uh, didn't absorb anything, I guess, like the I guess they did in the novella and the other one. Right. Also, Dr. Carrington is only 34 years old when the movie is made. He like looks so old in that movie. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Did um, they make him look that old or is that just how he looks? I think it's a little bit of both. The way he dressed and like his hair and everything was made for the movie, but I think he just kind of has one of those faces. When the thing is electrocuted, at one point, James Arness is 6'6", six, six, so it, like it's a big monster, but at one point when it's getting electrocuted, like it's shrinking down, and it's played by uh, a little person named Billy Curtis, and as he's shrinking, he's just... Ah. I, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, it is. Because honestly, I, I was it? don't even remember seeing him being smaller. Like, I, I, I read that trivia and I was like, oh, weird. I don't either. Was it was it even yeah. necessary? I don't know. I mean, like, I, I would say no because I don't remember it. But maybe I... It's not like they make a point of it. I can't really think of a reason to. I just It just seems like it was gone. It got electrocuted, then it just kind of melted down and vanished. And, like, the plan goes off without a hitch. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, Carrington tries to shut off the generator. That happens for a couple seconds. And then he, like, runs past him. I don't know why they let him be free after he tried to pull a gun on him. But then he goes and talks to the things, and he's like, I know you're smarter than us. We can talk to each other. And the thing just bats him aside. The batting part was the weakest hit I've ever seen in my life. And he barely taps him. Yeah. Yeah, it's... He barely taps oh, him, but throws him across the room. Yeah, to be fair, they, they were not good at fight choreography back then. I mean, like, sometimes they were. But, like, it, unless it was a pretty big part of the movie... But a lot of punches and slaps are pretty weak. In fact, I'm I'm kind of surprised they didn't slap Barnes when he, he shoots at the thing and then he runs out of the room, like, right after it melts. And he's, like, babbling and everything and still pointing his, his gun at people. So, uh, so the, uh, the doctor that's with him splashes water in his face. I was, I was so expecting him to just be like, whoosh, whoosh, snap out of it, man! The final scene... They're all huddled around the radio, which conveniently now works again. Scotty is uh, telling those, uh, And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everyone wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. Has become a pretty iconic line for both aliens and nuclear warheads. It was used, like, for magazines, and, and it's referenced here and there. I kind of thought that part was asinine, to be honest. Why would they even, like, listen? Why would they believe that, though? Why would why would the military let him? Like, even if he was saying it on his end, like, you'd think the other end would be, like, uh, shut it down. Yeah. I don't The whole newspaper thing was weird to me. He's like, I want to get my story out the whole time when they're dying. Like, well, I don't know. I guess nobody, act, like, I'm what, two people died the whole movie? 
yeah, a couple of dogs and uh, two scientists. Yeah. So uh, I guess I believe the. I guess there wasn't enough death for them to actually be scared. Besides the kerosene scene, this whole movie didn't really work as like thrilling or horrifying. Maybe it's just because I've seen what's come since then. So many other movies like Alien and John Carpenter's The Thing and like so many more. Like there's there's just not that much suspense or thrills or horror in this movie. It's just it's it's a monster feature, but it's not all that special to me how many but how many old horror movies have you watched to where you actually felt suspense and scared and stuff well uh some of the iconic horror movies like the the wolfman and some of those some of those do have legitimately scary moments in them people have certainly got better at horror since the 1950s oh much better i wouldn't even do they classify this movie as a horror i don't know Maybe because honestly, I wouldn't even classify it as a horror. It's more of a just a I, move sci-fi, like they said. Yeah, I think I think it's mostly just considered a sci-fi. Yeah, movie it's at this not point. like. But Roger Ebert and John Carpenter, like several of them, are like this movie scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. But I mean, like again, that's them being a kid. Also, this is one of John Carpenter's like favorite movies. So he actually had scenes from this movie in Halloween. Like, while Lori's watching the kids, they're watching the thing from another world. And that was four years before his version of the thing came out, so clearly he was a fan of the movie. Yeah. I don't really have anything else to say about the 1951 version. Like, I I looked, but there just, there just wasn't that much interesting stuff about it. And I feel like if I had grown up with this movie, I probably would have tried a little harder. But, like, I, I did look for stuff, and I just didn't find much else of interest. I mean, well, I, can, I can see that. If It's a nice movie to go back and watch. But if you're going to sit there and be like, ah, oh, this, uh, this is one of my favorite movies now or anything, especially if you didn't grow up with that, that's it's definitely one of those, one of those types of movies. It's not like how you would watch alien now like when you were a kid or say like a teenager is growing up now and they go back and watch alien and, oh that's my favorite movie i can legitimately see why alien or even like predator or the old halloweens or slashers or any type of like older sci-fis could be your favorite movie but if you like revert back to the 1950s and you're like oh this movie's great i mean to me, a lot of those movies are building building blocks to get to better things. But there's nothing like... I, there's only certain movies that you can talk about that are old that have a lot of significance. This has like significance in littler ways, but it's not something that we can like hugely carry on a conversation for hours. It's not, I mean, it's, there's so many other classic movies that pushed uh film so much further yeah and and like i'm glad i went back and watched it i i'm because now i can see some of the things where that it inspired and like i appreciate it being made but like as far as what i'm gonna do on a saturday night if i'm gonna watch a movie it's probably not gonna be this again no (laughs) it's just it's it's fine but it was a product of its time and that time is long past i mean it's like going back and watching um Oh my god, I always forget the movie's name because I 
do not like it. It's considered the greatest movie of all time. Uh, or the Citizen Kane. Oh, Citizen Kane, yes. Or the, I guess that most influential movie or something. I absolutely mm-hmm. cannot stand that movie in every single way. <laughs> but I've seen it three times, and I understand why it's so good and why what it did for film and how it changed film like yes you should go back and watch these especially if you really want to understand film and you have a passion for it but if you're just trying to chill on like a like you said on a saturday or whatever and watch a movie if you're picking up citizen kane or even this and you're like ah this is what this is what i do like this is your 14th time you are a psychopath there's something (laughs) wrong with you yeah uh it it I, I can appreciate it. it. It has its merits, but we've come a long way in entertainment, and, and it shows. I think we're both ready to move on to the next movie. Yeah, let's go. So both of these films had unusual opening credits. Uh, for 1951, they didn't feature any of the cast members in the opening credits, and also didn't have RKO's signature dot dash dot instead being replaced by the opening theme. On the other hand, John Carpenter's The Thing was made by Universal Studios, but did not feature the Universal World logo, which is often seen, because they thought it would be too confusing with the um, ship crashing in, which I'm kind of bummed by, because I think it'd be great if, like, the ship crashes into the the Arctic, and then, like, you pull back, and, like, the Universal logo whirls around the world like it normally does. I thought that would have been cute, but, uh, but they didn't go for it at the time. Actually... <clears throat> really liked the the spaceship crash intro it caught me like it it got me into the movie right away because i was like that is weird i've never seen that before like the movies don't normally do that especially uh 80s movies like that's not that that's not how you open the credits so i so i was very captivated to start yeah, the only thing I can think of that's kind of similar is the first Predator, the one with Arnold. They have a pretty similar ship flies in, then like or ship flies past the camera in space, and then it like cuts to like it flying by Earth and shooting off like a little pod where the uh, that the Predator is in. But yeah, those are the only two I can think of that have a scene like that i'm probably i'm probably missing some but yeah uh, well i mean this was what and this is 1981 when did predator come out uh this came out in 82, 82. uh predator was 87 80s. so i bet this movie because it came out early 80s i bet it influenced it, it influenced opening credits later on in the 80s i bet if you look 82 and before there wasn't very many of those openings, and then after that, it popularized it. I can almost guarantee that that's what happened. I, I would say that's a pretty safe assumption. Yeah. John Carpenter's The Thing was almost not John Carpenter's. Producers Lawrence Terman and David Foster wanted John Carpenter to begin with, like from the very get-go, they wanted him. But Universal wanted Toby Hooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, instead. Uh, Hooper found the novella boring and wrote two scripts making the story a modern-day Moby Dick in Antarctica. He'd be chased by a character known only as the captain that would be chasing this this thing, and it wouldn't shapeshift at all. It'd just be like a hulking leviathan. 
I don't really know how he planned on making that work, but the producers were horrified and eventually got rid of him. What? What did you yeah. what, what did you just say? Did he submit the, that to somebody? Yeah, he uh he he sent that he he sent in two drafts of the script and that was like his plan was to make a modern day Moby Dick at Antarctica and the producers were like get the fuck out of here. What? Yeah, I I I mean, like honestly, I I really enjoyed the novella. It's not perfect, but it's it's really interesting and entertaining. Uh, that is, so I don't know why you found it boring. But also, making a modern day Moby Dick sounds boring as shit. That's also in fucking insane. You have uh, this is a big. If you guys continue, if we when we continue this podcast and go over movies, and you're gonna see there's this thing that I have, and it's called source material. There's fucking source material for a reason. The source material is very good. You go off the source material, you stick with the source material, and you make fantastic fucking movies. If you look at most movies who stuck with source material and didn't try to add in their own flair, those movies are brilliant. But these, like... Like, why would you change? Like, you have a great novella. You have a building block in the 50s to build off of. Take those together, morph them into something. And, I, I mean, I think John Carpenter probably, he did that as, as we go on and see. But please, if you're an up-and-coming filmmaker and you're listening to this for some reason, stick to your source material. Yeah, it, it, at least, like appreciate that that's what you're working from i i can understand changing things here and there or uh, or like making your own thing within the same universe like there's there's a lot of ways you can like as you said add your own flair without completely disregarding the source material but when you completely disregard it and also like use a different source material because he basically wanted to make moby dick then make moby dick don't make the thing moby dick it's just it. It was mind-boggling. Yeah, he just he, he wrote a whole new story and you know, like, hey, I'm gonna try to get them to sell this movie, and this is how I'm gonna. I bet. I wonder if he, I bet he's been thinking about that for a long time. And he's just like, I'm gonna slip this little little thing in here and see if they they go for it. Did he ever make yeah. a, a Moby Dick top movie? Uh, not as far as I know, but I didn't look up his uh, track record. I, I I mostly just saw that and was like, yeah, that makes sense why they fired him. <laughs> but he made thank, he, thank God they got John Carpenter back. Yeah, he made the original uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. I don't is that one even the one that's considered the greatest? Isn't? Uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, it was very influential. So it came out in '74, but it's really. I mean, he, he also did the Poltergeist, Poltergeist, which also came out in 1982. Those are his main claims to fame. I guess uh, he just didn't like it. I mean, I'm I would I'm glad they went with John Carpenter. I mean, Halloween, one of the most iconic movies ever. Like, most iconic, like, faces and, like, name and oh, for sure. everything. Uh, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. yeah, it has it, but it doesn't have the flair that Halloween has, that Michael Myers, that the knife. Even the poster, I would say, is like I so iconic mm-hmm. for it. 
they did well by getting John Carpenter back. So the budget for this movie was $15 million, making it by far Carpenter's biggest project at the time. It's also just like an, a massive budget for a horror movie. Comparatively, Friday the 13th from 1980 cost 700000 John Carpenter's own Halloween from 1978 cost 375000 Alien was much closer. This 1979 Ridley Scott's Alien cost 11 million. So it was closer to that. But even then, like, Alien had to build, like, the ships, the costumes, uh, the planet. I mean, like, they didn't have to build the planet, but they had to build the sets on the planet. Uh, so it's, it's incredible that they got that 15 million. And most of it went into the effects. Uh, Rob Bottin had a 40 person crew for most of it. So. They really needed that money to make it work. Plus, they had to do some shooting in um, British Columbia. I I think like six weeks in British Columbia. The rest was on sound stages. They made the most of their $15 million budget. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, effects would make sense. I guess the biggest budget on Alien, Alien would be the actual Alien as well. The Getting it to move and look like it does. Even though small things back then for 79... I mean, the same thing with the, the Thing monster. Think about that. That's hard to do now with mm. how well it was done as well. Yeah. And they had so what, this... they had multiple scenes of the, the monster. Yeah, essentially like four or five real big, real time-consuming scenes. Yeah, I mean, for most... I mean, that's a, that's a lot for a horror movie that has like... Or a horror, sci-fi, suspense. The thing falls into many categories. Mm-hmm. But for like those type of effects back then, to see to see it over and over again, I mean, you're you're spending a lot of money. This film had two taglines, and I'm not a huge fan of either of them. Uh, the first one was "Man is the warmest place to hide." <laughs> Just without context, that is a really weird tagline and even with context it still sounds weird yeah i wouldn't go for that one the the second one was the ultimate alien terror which was added by universal studio executive sid uh scheinberg or sheenberg i'm not sure which to capitalize on ridley scott's 1979 alien like they wanted to piggyback off that yeah uh the thing and alien have a quite a few things in common like the size of the budget the thing they probably have most in common is the uh heavy inspiration from hp lovecraft's uh cosmic horror literature like cthulhu and the uh mountains of madness the designs of the creatures the horrifying aspects of it it's an almost uncomprehensible outer like extraterrestrial threat so it opened on June 25th, 1982, and uh, this is a hungry movie, according to Stan Winston. It had an incredible crew, John Carpenter's direction, Dean Coonley's incredible cinematography, the script by Bill Lancaster, Rob Bottin and Stan Winston and Peter Curran bringing horrifying and incredible effects, Susan Turner's model making, she made that uh, spaceship at the beginning, and the spaceship looks awesome just as a model like it almost looked better just as a model than it does like on the screen albert whitlock's gorgeous matte paintings and todd ramsey's editing 
They were all young, besides Whitlock, ambitious filmmakers with a focused, dedicated cast, and producers that did their best to relay between them and the studio to make a benchmark in cinematic horror. There were no weak links on this production after they got rid of Toby Hooper. (laughs) This film also had the longest pre-production that John Carpenter had ever had before or since, according to the 1998 DVD making of, and he utilized it very wisely. To establish the group before they began filming, he had all 12 actors hanging out on set together for two weeks to try to bond and figure out dynamics. During this time, Richard Mazur, who plays Clark, and Keith David, who plays Childs, because they were the two biggest men, both of them over six feet tall, uh, they decided they would be slightly antagonistic towards each other. Which, that time with them like bonding and figuring stuff out before they actually have to film, I think really helped with their characters well i mean it even helps with how the mannerisms work with because they're all up there alone in this snowed place that they they're not going anywhere for a while it makes sense that they would be that close and be angry at like little nuances about things like oh these two guys are both big yeah i hate the other big guy like i mean that totally makes sense like, that's yeah. so smart. Susan Turner made the spaceship for the opening shot, made of mostly ABS plastic, brass etchings, and 144 lights. The model is awesome, especially for only being used in two shots. And that's just at the opening. The, the model's never seen again. Albert Whitlock, who had worked previously with Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock on The Birds, and also worked on Earthquake from 1974, where he won an Academy Award, which is funny because we were talking about that the other day. He used Susan Turner's model to create the matte paintings for the spaceship at a scale that they couldn't do. This is the only time Carpenter got to work with Whitlock, despite being a big fan. Do you know what matte paintings are? No, not really. So, basically, they're paintings that are used to create the illusion of an environment not present at the filming location. For the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the man's pushing the cart with the Ark through the warehouse full of other crates, none of the other crates exist. They were all painted on glass, and essentially the camera was set up to film the glass, the character would walk down an empty hallway. So it created the illusion of this massive warehouse when instead it was just a guy, like, on a flat surface. So it's basically a magic trick. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this movie pulled out a lot of magic tricks. Essentially, all the pre-CGI techniques to create visuals were used in this According to um, Albert Whitlock, the vital issue of making a mat work is having things standing in space, dimensionally in space, receding from you, which doesn't necessarily mean dissipation of color, doesn't necessarily mean just dissipation of color and tone, but still to get the feeling it's there, standing in space, it remains too, otherwise it remains two-dimensional. So this technique is mostly died out due to green screen, CGI, and 3D builders, they mostly rendered this technique obsolete because like today you can have people in front of a green screen and then uh and then you can just paint in like the cityscape behind them and they could be you know like under a bridge in new york city they could be on top of a mountain whatever like you can do it all in cgi or but this was pre-cgi so it was all like the map paintings had to be for the backgrounds, when they're standing in front of that massive spaceship, that's all matte paintings. When they find the uh, the hole in the ice, like the big square where they pulled it out, 
everything around them is matte paintings. It's it's a really awesome technique, and I think the last time it was really in use was in Titanic. Since then, it's really dropped off, which I get it, but it's kind of a shame. Yeah, I wonder what I, w- I wonder how much better CGI is to the matte paintings. I would like to see a true comparison. That'd be pretty hard to do, but it would be very interesting to see, because in a lot of ways, CGI does not age well. All the creature effects in this are practical. In the 2011, they tried to do that, but the studio wasn't happy with it, so they had everything reshot in CGI, and it looks fucking terrible. That movie's only nine years old. This version, the uh, John Carpenter's version, is 40 years old this year. Still holds up. Yeah. I am not the hugest fan of all CGI stuff. I think it does ruin... It doesn't ruin movies, but I don't think... I think they use it too much when they could use more practical effects. Because practical effects, I mean, it's in the words. They're practical. They look real. With CGI, there's always still a little bit of hint of like, this maybe not be real. Like The whole era of CGI after uh, they made Avatar to where they made all of those movies that had CGI and 3D and all that stuff, I don't think those those movies at all stand up. Nobody's going back to watch those. If you go back to all those, uh, that whole time, they're watching movies that are made more practically that are like in person, not CGI filled. Like, I mean, people like the Hobbit movies, but if you go back and watch them, they're CGI. If you like the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien stuff, you're going to watch Lord of the Rings and not the Hobbit movies. You know, well, CGI is a tool like anything else, and yeah. in the right hands or uh, or used correctly, it's incredible. The CGI scenes in Jurassic Park, made in nineteen ninety three, still hold up pretty well. But if it's used as a crutch, things age almost immediately. It's like how a, a car uh, starts devaluing as soon as it gets off the lot. Like, yeah, the, the the Lord of the Rings had a bunch of CGI, but most of it looks incredible, whereas the Hobbit had almost all cgi and it i mean like there's a lot of reasons the hobbit didn't age well but the effects a lot of them don't look great yeah i think if they took away a lot of the effects and they went to how they filmed lord of the rings the people would have loved those movies a lot more yeah speaking of practical effects the way they did the thing logo at the very beginning was really cool it was done by uh peter Curran. Um, it was meant to replicate the 1951 title screen, so uh, he wrote the thing on an animation cell, placed it behind a fish tank that he filled with smoke, and then he put a light behind a black trash bag behind the uh, animation cell, and then set the bag on fire, so the bag would melt and peel away, revealing the thing, which, I like, I it looks incredible. No, that, that's actually really cool. There's, there's... Is it for the new Lord of the Rings show? Speaking about Lord of the Rings, like they came out with, like the opening credit or the like the like the name to show it, and they actually carved like the whole thing out, and then it pours like um you know the the ring molten molten uh iron or whatever like mm-hmm. flows down through the name, and they actually made that and shot it rather than CGI'd it. Well, that's pretty cool. I hadn't seen that, so 
So let's get into this. Uh, Kevin, what's the premise? Oh my goodness. It's basically the same thing as the 1951, but it's a lot more scary, a lot more intense. Uh, the thing actually destroys stuff. Basically, there's a, a bunch of guys who are stuck, or not not stuck. They're choosing to be up there for like I guess a research project. These crazy, crazy what Norwegian people come out of nowhere, uh, shooting at a dog. You feel bad for it. Uh, then you learn that there's a the dog's bad. It's a thing. Uh, they go crazy, kills stuff, sucks them in, absorbs the pit all of the men against each other and no nobody trusts anybody there's blood samples taken to see if you're bad there's lots of fire lots of carnage lots of snow and cold <laughs> fantastic all right so ha- have you seen this before uh no that was this was my first time watching it so i, I asked my parents because uh they they had seen it my mom said with Kurt Russell, oh, I thought that hat was so stupid. Uh, <laughs> then she clarified, she was like, I thought at the time it was a really scary movie, and even today it's pretty intense, but that stupid hat. And like I brought it up to her days later, and she was like, make sure to talk about that stupid hat. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't find it that stupid. I was, I guess it is. I, it's... Like, it's a very big hat, and in the Arctic winds, because, like, in, in Antarctica, the, the winds can be incredibly intense, uh, that hat would have, like, been choking him the entire time. I I also just think, like, of all the hats they could have chosen, they chose, like, a massive, like, prospector hat. Like, it just, it's a very weird choice. It was already there by the time Kurt Russell was on board, so, like, he had to have it, but... I don't know. I'm not a big fan of it either. <laughs> I think it's dumb. Like I think like a, a more regular cowboy hat or like and like something else that's not so like just massive and and like cumbersome. I I don't know. It, it's not my favorite. But uh my mom told me to bring it up so I have to. <laughs> I had my dad watch it. He watched it earlier tonight cuz he didn't remember it very well cuz he hadn't seen it in a while. He um he he liked it, said that it holds up pretty well. He asked if there was a sequel, but yeah, he, he said it was entertaining. That didn't take, didn't have much to say about it though. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the hat is weird. It is a weird choice. It's, it is super big. I guess it's that, so big. I guess they just wanted to like make him stand out because I guess even at the beginning of the movie, you don't truly know that he's the main character i guess if you saw like the previews and stuff maybe he was but going into it not knowing anything like i kind of i knew he was but you don't know maybe the hat's there to be like hey this is the guy you should be watching out for yeah the the only person or the only reason you really know that kurt russell's the main character is because it's kurt russell and that's only because of like everything he did following this but uh this was also not his only in close encounter with extraterrestrials in addition to starring in movies like stargate and guardians of the galaxy sorry guardians of the galaxy 2 russell also witnessed the phoenix lights event in 1997 one of the most well-known events in ufo history he was flying a plane and he called it into the tower i believe he was the only pilot to call it in so uh, Kurt Russell was abducted by aliens, and then he plays it, alien alien movies. 
No, no, he just witnessed it, but so did like a thousand other people. Like they, they had hundreds of calls coming in about the the Phoenix Lights. Uh, chances are it was just flares from a uh, A ten warthog, but it's it's a very well known UFO event. So, did you like this movie? Oh yeah, I loved it. I watched it with my wife, and mm-hmm. she loved it as well. Like she. I mean, we love horror movies in general, but I thought it was great. I, they, the monster was gross and nasty and scary. You cared about the main character. You cared about what was happening up there. You really cared about all the dogs that were dying. And it really breaks your heart to start to know that they, like, used the dog and killed it. Like, I mean... It, it, especially if you're a dog person or you like animals, it literally rips your heart out. Hmm. The critics hated this movie. I I, I brought some of their reviews. Um, so Vincent Canby for the New York Times called it foolish, depressing. Its actors were used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated, finally to be eaten and the, then regurgitated. It is too phony to be disgusting. It only, it qualifies only as instant junk. The plot was considered boring and undermined by the special effects. Linda Gross for the LA Times called it bereft, despairing, and nihilistic, and lacking in feeling, meaning the character's deaths did not matter. David Anson for Newsweek thought that it was a style over substance, and it lacked drama by sacrificing everything at the altar of gore. And, quote, an example of the new aesthetic, atrocity for atrocity's sake. Alan Spencer for Starlog contended that John Carpenter, quote, John Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. <laughs> it's brutal. A lot of the reviews complained that the characters were boring, flat, or stereotypes, and the effects were well done but too gruesome to be appreciated. Oh my god, dude. I, they all have their foot in their mouth. They're all troglodytes who freaking... <laughs> They found out 10, 20 years later, people love that. Like, that is so, that is a whole genre in itself that people go to see. I want to see gore. I want to see nastiness. I want to see a movie to where they will never get out of it and nothing matters and they are fighting for their lives. So this is what Roger Ebert's, uh, I, I took his full review. Um, so th- this is the whole thing. The Thing is a great barf bag movie, alright, but is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost. Characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotions for his audiences. And I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters. This time, though, despite being roughed out typecasting and a few reliable stereotypes, the drunk, the psycho, the hero, he has, po- he has populated his ice station with people whose primary purpose in life is to get jumped on from behind. The few scenes that develop characterizations are overwhelmed by the scenes in which the men are set up for attacks by the thing. That leads us to the second problem, plausibility. We know that the thing likes to wait until a character is alone and then pounce, digest, and imitate him. By the time you see Doc again, is he still Doc or is he the thing? Well, the obvious defense against this problem is the watertight buddy system, but time and time again, Carpenter allows his characters to wander off alone and come back with silly grins on their faces. 
until we lost count of who may who may have been affected and who hasn't. That takes the fun away. The Thing is basically then just a geek show, a gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in The Thing. But it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and people to become secondary. Because of this material has been done before and better, especially in the original The Thing and in Alien, there is no need to see this version unless you are interested in what The Thing might look like while while starting from anonymous greasy organs extruding giant crab legs and transmuting itself into a dog. Amazingly, I'll... I'll bet that thousands, if not millions, of moviegoers are interested in seeing just that. That I mean, that's a good review. I like not not like a good review, but like for a person who is very critical of a movie and putting it out there and how they look at it, especially the end part. Not as much as the, the beginning where he went into like the the characters uh like them going off alone and stuff like that it kind of is dumb that they continued to split up over and over and over again but i mean i think what he said is i mean it's kind of close to accurate king so i gave this one in full because roger ebert is one of the benchmarks of film critics but he's not always right he's very insightful most of the time and usually correct But he was a product of his time. In the same way that he claimed video games could never be art, he appears to think that since he was scared of the thing from another world when he was nine, any remakes would just be a phony rehash. Ebert assumed that who went to view it would just go to see the monsters, but would still be repulsed. On the other hand, his critic partner, Gene Siskel, had some pretty positive things to say about the movie. He understood that the grotesque imagery overrode it, but that the allegory underneath was worth the view. So, uh... They also, like, a lot of people didn't like the nihilistic and ambiguous ending. They felt it left them unsatisfied. Because this was 1982, so there was the Cold War, there was AIDS, there was um, the recession. For a lot of people, it was a very bleak time, and uh, they were upset with how bleak this movie ends. Yeah, they wanted happy movies rather than something... Yeah. Yeah, um... We'll get to those uh, happy movies in a second. Carpenter was particularly upset by Christian Nyby, the director of the original Thing from Another World, who publicly denounced his version, saying, If you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. Uh, He was stunned by the reception to the film because he believed he had made an incredible movie, but it was obliterated by critics and audiences alike. The score was done by Ennio... Maricone, who you probably know from uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, um, Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More. Very, very well known, even even in 1982. But he was nominated for a Razzie for the worst score. He ended up taking those unused parts from this movie, like the, the parts he didn't use in this movie, and he used them in The Hateful Eight, which earned him an Oscar. Bro, he literally just said... I know this is good. You guys are... I'm going to show you guys and sneak this into a wonderful movie and get an Oscar for it. That is, like, ultimate revenge. I love that. I I also just really like the score in this movie. It's subtle. Carpenter likes his scores to be in the background. And this is the first time he didn't score the movie himself 
he uh he was a big fan of Marconi, so he asked him to do it. And and they had a little bit of trouble between the two of them because uh he, like he almost wanted like Carpenter almost wanted like hit his own score. So like Marconi didn't really understand why he chose him. Carpenter just wanted to focus on the directing, but uh he like and he loved Marconi. He told him that uh, he got married to his music, but he he wanted his take on kind of like a more Carpenter thing than he normally does. Uh, I think it works. Like especially like that that main theme, just that dump dump dump. Like I I I think it works really well. But I I'm biased. I love the movie so. Yeah, I I didn't see anything bad about the score. Maybe if I had if, if I watch it multiple times, but I mean I thought the score went pretty well with the movie. I didn't think it was off putting or like this is weird times for this type of noises or music and stuff. I I thought it was fine. Yeah, I feel like the. Re- I feel like the Razzies always kind of just like join the hate wagon. And since this movie was getting panned for everything else, they like threw that in there. But I don't see how this could qualify as the worst score. I mean, I I don't know. I, I just don't get it. But everyone was hating on this movie. Commercially, the film had a real rough time as well. It came out in June, uh, June 25th, 1982, two weeks after E.T. and the same day as Blade Runner. Other notable genre Ooh. movies that came out that year were Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II, uh, Tron, Mad Max II, The Road Warrior, Poltergeist, The Secrets of Nim, Dark Crystal, and Conan the Barbarian. So it was it was a very heavy summer f- for like horror and sci-fi and fantasy. That's that had a rough year to it went yeah. it opened with blade runner it opened the same day as blade runner and both of them got obliterated oh. at the box office and by critics and then would eventually get their time to shine on home video later there's like people didn't like blade runner when it first came out no they hated it people just hate progressiveness in general just because it's like the first time that they show like a gory different type of movie like people just hate it i guess the theatrical version of blade runner also had like it had really abysmal narrations uh and a lot of like studio interference blade runner really didn't get good until uh the final cut was released and that took a while but like some people liked it even at the time it just that that original version with the narration was rough. Wow. So the thing ended its theater run with nineteen point six mil- million, meaning it made back its initial cost, but not when you consider marketing. Now, nowadays you essentially double a movie's budget to figure out how much it needs to make to break a- even. I don't think that was entirely true in 1982, and I don't know how much they spent on marketing costs. So it probably ended up being a slight failure, I would assume. With such poor reception, Carpenter was fired from his adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter and was bought out of his multi-picture deal with Universal. He lamented later that they called him a pornographer of violence, although I think they should have called him a gornographer if they're going to do that. But he wondered what would have become if of his career if the thing had done well quote i had no idea it would be received that way 
the thing was just too strong for that time. I knew it was going to be strong, but I didn't think it would be too strong. I didn't take the public's taste into consideration. He lost confidence in filmmaking and focused on lower-budget movies for a while. This had been his first foray into big-budget Hollywood films, and like the initial reception was a massive blow. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the scenes in this so reviled movie. So, opening helicopter chase. Right at the start, we have a helicopter chasing what appears to be an innocent dog, shooting out in, throwing bombs. We're already stuck trying to figure out who to root for and why. Do we want the dog to escape? It's a pretty dog showing no malice or disease. Why wouldn't we? On the other hand, we have two men desperately trying to kill it. They aren't laughing or enjoying themselves like poachers or psychopaths. They're focused, so there has to be a reason. And uh, this scene switches between the chase and the men at camp. Most of the men are relaxing in the rec room, somewhat socializing, but McCready is alone in a small cabin to himself. He went all the way to the bottom of the world and still didn't feel far enough away. He's drinking and playing chess against a computer. When he loses, after thinking he was winning, he destroys the computer, which in the early 80s must have been insanely expensive. I mean, like, that that machine isn't a real machine. They made it for the movie. Um, I couldn't find any chess master, like, prototypes or anything but like a move or a computer at that time cost thousands of dollars and uh this kind of hints at mccready's paranoia isolation and determination when he loses he assumes the game cheated or at least that's its excuse as gamers often do he dumps his scotch into the machine just destroying it completely knowing full well that he won't be getting another one at least until spring and it's only the first week of winter this is also the only female character in the entire movie uh adrian barbeau I think that's how you pronounce it. She was the wife of John Carpenter at the time. She plays the voice of the chess computer. One of the other characters was going to be played by a woman, but she got pregnant during filming and had to drop out, returning to an all-male cast, which Carpenter and Bill Lancaster both liked because it eliminated any need for a love interest or anything to, to distract from the, the distrust and the paranoia between the cast members. So the dog arrived at camp, both of the helicopter pilots die, which is kind of a comical scene. Uh, I was re-watching it again last night. Like, the second Norwegian, the pilot, dropping the bomb is kind of silly, but then if you watch, he just gets blown sky high, just shoots vertically out of frame, which is pretty funny, in like, to me. But it's kind of a silly way for them to die. Yeah. The, like, the whole... Kind of slapstick. Yeah, the whole opening that the where the once they got landed and got out and started doing that, I was like, "What? What's going on? What is this movie?" I, like mm-hmm. it, he, he also just like, I don't know. I guess they were mad. They went mad because of the th- because of the thing, but I, yeah, it was when he blew himself up and all that. That was it was hilarious. The dog is accepted into camp with none of them knowing why it happened. Like the second, the second Norwegian is shot by Gary because he is shooting at the dog and ends up grazing uh, Bennings, and that that's like a like pretty intense scene once you figure out what happens later because the dog is jumping up and trying to lick Bennings' face and he's like just got his glove in between him and the dog, but if he didn't, like he could have been assimilated like immediately. Instead, like the dog's kind of stuck at the moment, so he just has to pretend to keep being a dog. Clark takes the dog inside. This is our first clue that Clark is more comfortable around dogs than other men. And that goes for all the characters. They're all purposely, by their own decision, stuck at the South Pole because they 
don't or they they want to be away from the world for one reason or another there's there's hints to why but it's not like openly stated so like i can see why roger ebert claimed that like all the characters are kind of one-dimensional like they don't have much personalities but i i think it's true it's or i i think they do it's just very subtle gary's always dressed up as if he was like a navy man as if like he he's like reliving former glory days but he doesn't have any medals uh which might mean like he was dishonorably discharged or or like he didn't actually do anything when he was there you know they've all got these little character traits but it's very subtle to the point of almost non-existence so i get what they're saying yeah there was i disagree there was very i mean thinking back on it there was very little character development within the movie now you don't you don't necessarily need character development but if you're not going to develop the main characters you should at least develop the monster which i guess they did but didn't i i don't know i can i can i can see kind of both sides on that but i mean there was very little character development overall yeah well i mean like i'm also coming at it like 40 years later having watched it for over a two decades at this point like just i've i've watched this movie a lot so like to me i can see like with their wardrobe and everything hints at their character but yeah besides mac uh none of them really have much of a character on the surface so besides the opening chase the dot Except for that scene, the dog was a wolf Malamute hybrid named Jed, and by all accounts was a terrific animal actor. He never looked at the camera or the crew, and he nailed the long hallway scene in just like four or five takes. That hallway scene, like the dog doesn't seem like a dog. It, it goes to one door and like pauses and then like goes to the next door. Like it, it's, it's got this like quality to it that's really good kind of gives you this impression that it's smarter than just a dog like it, there's something to it so what you're stating right now is the dog had the best acting in the whole movie uh the dog was very good i thought everyone else played their part pretty well as well i don't think there was any weak links in the acting even the dog the dog's number one and that's what we're going with oh all right <laughs> uh the the dog's allowed to wander camp while mccready and dr copper investigate the norwegian camp uh, this exploration seems fairly innocent before what comes next and gives the dog plenty of time to assimilate at least one of the people at the camp. This is one of several scenes that ends with a fade to black, which a lot of people criticized the editor Tom Ramsey for. Carpenter backed him 100%, and I like it too. It's it's a very classic scene ending to fade to black. The reason I like it is it gives some ambiguity to these scenes, and in my opinion it kind of works with the exhaustion of the characters that they're enduring from lack of sleep. It's like they're nodding off, maybe for a moment, maybe longer, but you don't know how much time has passed, meaning someone could have been assimilated while we couldn't see. It also pays a homage to the novella and the 1951 version, with Mac finding that massive block of ice that the thing had laid dormant in. They also find a, the body of a man with slit wrists and a slit throat, with the blood frozen as it poured out of him. This effect nearly made Carpenter give up because it looked terrible on set. But uh, Rob Bottin assured him and the cast that once it's smeared with KY and lit by uh, Dean Kundi, it would look incredible. They used barrels of KY jelly on this movie. Like like 50, 
50 uh gallon drums of ky jelly and um what was it uh uh curd and one of the special effects guy he was like yeah the, i thought of this movie as like the ky movie because i didn't even know you could buy ky in 50 gallon drums they just so they were just using that to make him look frozen well, they, they used it in a lot of scenes, but it helped give it, like, a shine and, like, a slickness, and it also, like, it's used in the monsters. It gives it a more lifelike shine, so you don't really focus on the rubber underneath. So they weren't it, using it, 50, they didn't use 50 gallons on the one thing, they used it like, No, oh, no, okay. they used it throughout the movie. I was yeah. like, that's so excessive. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> Let's move on to the kennel scene, which is uh, the the first time we get to see Rob Bottin's uh, effects. After Mac and Doc check out the Norwegian camp, which the, uh, where the helicopter came from, they find it completely destroyed. That was actually just the American camp that they blew up at the like for the uh, final scene in the movie. They just reused it as the Norwegian camp after it was destroyed, which very smart, saved them a lot of money, and I don't think anyone was the wiser. The dog was put into the uh, kennel with the other sled dogs. And this this is the first of many gruesome scenes. Rob Bottin was 22 years old at the time of this. He was the uh, makeup special effects creator and designer. He was a fan of Carpenter's after seeing Halloween, and he worked on his film The Fog. He was also a fan of cinematographer Dean Kundi. At one point, he burst into a meeting between the two uh, and told him he wanted to be in their movie, which was The Fog. Later on, while working on The Fog, Carpenter told Botin he wanted him to work on the thing together. Botin had already cut his teeth in special effects starting when he was just 17 years old with King Kong. He also worked on Star Wars New Hope, The Fog, where he met Carpenter, and The Howling, which came out in 1980. He did all uh, the uh, special effects makeup for all, for all the werewolf transformations. At 22, was already a veteran of special effects, and he... This is probably his his crowning achievement, at least up to this point. He didn't do it alone, though. He had a staff of over 40 people, and after working on The Howling and other jobs with mechanical dogs, he said he was sick of dogs, didn't want to work on them, so he called in Stan Winston. He was also actually sick. During this movie, he, he worked 13 months, never taking a day off. Over 13 months of seven days a week, long days, working on this movie. He worked himself to exhaustion, to the point where he had to be hospitalized for it. On this scene, Stan Winston, you might know known for his work on Terminator 1 and 2, Aliens, Predator, and Jurassic Park. So he did a lot of the kennel scene. Well, he and his crew. He designed the dog thing to be first function and then form. So, like, the, the slimy dog thing that, like, looks around after it peels apart is actually just a hand puppet. He, he's like lying sideways inside the like fleshy mass of the uh, dog and just he has his arm up in the like face and like moving the mouth and like looking around just real simple technique to make a, a very convincing monster this scene also upset a lot of people it's very gross the dogs being hurt or consumed upset a lot of people one dog desperately biting through the kennel cage gets sprayed with a goo. That goo, according to John Carpenter, uh, was carbapole, the same stuff they use in Twinkies. Huh. The Botine aspect of this uh, scene is a little bit more abstract. The dog face splits open like a blooming flower, and the dog skull drops out, leaving this wriggling tongue, which is just so gross. 
And then uh, it reaches up towards the ceiling to escape, and you have another like flower thing, and it blooms, but but the 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 petals are made of dog tongues with like teeth, dog teeth stitching up. Not real dog tongues and teeth, but they're made to look like that. It's just such a like gross, but so creative. Just like a a flower made of dog tongues. <laughs> the the scene was wild. I mean, you got to think about the mind who came up with that, though. Like, yeah, come on, you're a little bit messed up if you're thinking about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, Rob Bottin is very creative. What did he do like after the thing? Oh, he he uh he continued to work on quite a bit of stuff. I mean, you would have to like after you see something like this, somebody build something of that great effect you gotta well, why isn't he like the man oh he is he's very well known but special effects rarely get top billing so yeah i guess it's all about the director and actors yeah but he did total recall he did seven he did robocop he did a couple of or one episode of uh game of thrones uh he did fight club he did mission impossible he did basic instinct the dude has been very prevalent throughout his career He's he's also just like a fascinating guy to watch in interviews. He he kind of gives off this this impression of like kind of like a an old stoner. Um, but he was only twenty two when he did this, and just nuts. Yeah, we're um, both thirty and just now getting to do our stuff. It's so depressing. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the defibrillator scene. Rob Bottin claims he would be scared to, to do the scene again, and I don't blame him. This scene scared the shit out of me as a kid. The surprise of the stomach opening was just such a shock. Charles Hallahan, who played Vance Norse, was uh, stuck in a harness for an entire day while they set up his fake body on the table. Every scene you see of him, like, shirtless on the table, only his, uh, his face and his arms are real. The rest of it's all fake. They took pictures of him shirtless so they could accurately recreate the pattern of his chest hair. And it worked so well that uh, Richard Dysart, who played Dr. Copper, who had known Hallahan for a long time, didn't realize it was fake until he was right on top of him. Because, like, he saw it from, like, he entered the room and saw it and was like, oh, it's disgusting, cover him up! And he, like, ran over to either, like, throw something on him or, like, slap his belly or whatever. And then, like, he gets there and he's like, oh, shit, this isn't real. (laughs) When the thing bites off Dr. Copper's hands, the arms are made out of jello, rubber, and dental wax. And they used a double am- amputee named uh, Joe Carone. He had lost both of his arms in an industrial accident. And they just, like, made a face mold of uh, Dr. Copper's face and just put it on him. So when he pulls away and he's, like, flailing around screaming, the wide shot is an actual double amputee going, ah, with, with a Dr. Copper face mask on. <laughs> just... incredible can you can you that's just hilarious to me just can you imagine a w double amputee just running around screaming Uh, just in general i feel like you'd have to have a guy with a good sense of humor because hey you lost both of your arms want to lose them again on film yeah like (laughs) (laughs) this scene also had two one it had two shots that were supposed to be one takes because of the extensive setup and the damage that would would be done but both had to be end up being done twice the first was the stomach opening spewing green blood like where it it was supposed to be one take but they they're filming it and john carpenter goes cut 
Jesus, Rob, what was that? Because, like, the the first shot, it spewed, like, quote, like a Las Vegas fountain. And Rob, Rob Bottin was, yeah, like, kind of looks like there should have been, like, showgirls dancing out in front of it. So they, they had to, like, clean it all up. Put the put the stomach back together, and poor Charles Hollihan was already in this harness. Not a comfortable thing. It took his back like two weeks to recover. But he's like, "Wait, we have to do that again." And Rob Bottin like gets close to me. He's like, "Yeah, sorry, Charlie, we gotta go again." <laughs> Just such a rough day. The second was when the head like stretches out and escapes the body. So the neck was a mess of gum and melted plastic covered in like rubber skin and then they had a uh, a press that would push from like the inside of the torso towards the neck and like literally push it until the rubber of the neck ripped and it, it fell off the end of the table but right before shooting started john carpenter realized that there was supposed to be flames underneath the lens because mac had already torched the to- the torso so they quickly hooked up a fire bar, which is like a little pipe with holes in it. So like it gives like a pretty even flame. It's kind of like uh, what they use in um, gas fireplaces. They got it all set up. There's toxic fumes from all the like melting plastic and the gas. They finally get it to light and it blows up in their faces. <laughs> There's no injuries, maybe some sun eyebrows, but the torso caught fire. And Rob Bottin's just standing there like, oh my god, it's on fire! And John Carpenter uh, is just like, don't just stand there, you idiot, put it out! <laughs> just, which would suck, because that would take so much time to, like, reset and get everything ready to go again. Very, very rough day of filming. When that head falls off, it looks like a, almost like a licorice pull and peel tongue that shoots out and latches onto the chair and pulls it. What an incredible shot. This gave John Carpenter a sense of relief because he was so scared this this was just going to be another guy in a suit movie, like the original, like his own Halloween, and a, specifically like Alien, which he says it's a terrific film, but he also says like at the end, the alien stands up and you can tell it's a guy in the suit. And he so didn't want this. That was his main goal was to not make it a guy in a suit. Watching the head detach, grow stalks, and crawl away relieved him because, like, this is definitely not just a guy in a suit movie. (laughs) It is far from a guy in a suit movie. Later on, he would be absolutely devastated by the poster created by Drew Struzan leading up to the film's release. I don't know if you've seen this one where it's a guy in a parka, but the face is like just a blinding light you can't see. Have you seen that picture? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. He hated that because, it, again, it's a guy in the suit. But to be honest, I actually love this poster because it shows that the thing could have been any of them. And we really get vibes of, like, if you see that, you can't see who the face is behind the, or in the parka. Really gives that who goes there vibes. The sprouting of the legs looks fantastic on the head. The head crawling away is one of the few effects that I would say doesn't hold up super well. You can the legs are moving, but you can tell that's not what's propelling the head. I, I I don't know if it was just like pulled on a rope or had like a wheel in it. It's not the best. Most of this movie holds up very well, but that one is not, not the best. But this scene also has Kurt Russell's favorite line. Palmer sees the head crawling away and just goes, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And Kurt Russell cannot get through that scene without laughing whenever he sees it again, which I think is a cute moment. Do you have anything to say about that movie or that uh, scene or should we move on to the blood test? 
I mean, you said a lot about it. I mean, the the, the scene. I mean, the, the scene was absolutely horrifying, and it was. I mean, it's everything that you want in a special effects and like gory, gross movie. Like you're not going to see gore if you're not going to see something that extreme. And they went extreme in that scene, and it was for it to be the first time that they show the thing you are going to be absolutely horrified for the rest of the movie thinking about what did i just experience and that that's gonna like play into your mind for the like when you go to bed that night that's going to be in your brain fuck i forgot we really should have said spoilers up top <laughs> i mean this movie's over 40 over 40 years old but like if you haven't seen it uh probably should watch this first my bad ah it'll be fine all right so let's move on to the blood test probably the most well-remembered and iconic scene of the movie this was the scene that made john carpenter want to make the movie it's also very timely coming out in 1982 right at the beginning of the aids epidemic and like with aids the only way to know for sure is a blood test so just very timely they they'd heard the very first mentions of aids the the year before when they were just started filming but uh it, it was so new at that point nobody knew what it was what caused it who could get it it was just it was just a disease attacking attacking mostly healthy gay men at the time so very scary on a lot of people's minds you gotta think aids and all that stuff for the next 20 plus years is building and building and they were right at the beginning and it becomes more and more scary yeah this was also at the beginning of the uh, reagan administration and reagan did an abysmal job of handling aids yeah um, i mean there was despite what people say nowadays uh it was truly barbaric how how awful they handled it yeah i mean people they incented <laughs> basically fear into people that had aids they were like, you know, if you if somebody had AIDS, you couldn't be around them. You were going to be affected and die. It was yeah, basically... you didn't know if you could get it from like shaking hands or like hugging. Like uh, that, people had no idea. It was it it was nothing but fear. Um, yeah, it was it's it's awful and yeah. how they treated the how they treated the people that actually had AIDS and how they incited a lot of homophobia and. They made it worse for that for the that community that was going on when they already had it bad. They were already different. There was no support for them, and because everybody thought that if you had AIDS, you were like that, that they got less and less support, and then they were looked upon as something super awful. It's just, I mean, I, terrible, terrible yeah, it's, time. It's tragic. The tension in the scene builds really well because it starts off you know he tests windows he tests himself and nobody really believes him but like the audience is pretty sure that mccready is definitely human just based on how he's acting and everything so like with every new test you've got a new innocent person but that really narrows down who the guilty person is and you don't know if it's just one person or multiple people what I really like about this is they used a very clever trick is they purposely gave everyone an eye shine. So like basically they had a light that would hit their eyes and it would glow in their pupils and it confirmed their innocence. 
but Palmer doesn't have that. Uh, it's a subtle hint at him not being human. Huh. They also uh, use the same shot of Kurt Russell with the fake hand for innocent people and the guilty Palmer. So like he, he like you're used to him like having it in his hand. He sets the needle and it it burns. Nothing happens. And then when he gets to Palmer, he's talking to Gary. He's like, we'll do you last. And then he does the same exact shot as before. But this time it just jumps out. And suddenly Palmer's the thing. The blood on the floor is really cool because I'm assuming they just had like a piece of tile and they just shifted it more vertically so that all the blood would like travel. Uh, But it looks really cool. But this scene also has another kind of silly shot that doesn't hold up too well when uh windows gets chomped they cut between shots of a real body kicking and then a very obvious fake dummy being ragdolled thankfully they don't stay on those shots too long but it like that scene just does not hold up too well on that part that that specific shot when mccready finally gets his flamethrower working and burns palmer he palmer breaks through the wall a very flimsy wall and this was also a homage to the uh, kerosene scene from the original but they make it their own by throwing dynamite and blowing up the Palmer thing as it's like burning in the snow. That explosion could have easily killed Kurt Russell. Like he was a lot closer to them to that than he should have been. What what did they use for? Did they actually? They didn't actually use dynamite, did they? I couldn't find out, but it looks like they might have, because that explosion is so close to coming back and hitting Kurt Russell. Like in the wide shot, you can see him like flinching to it because. That got hot. Yeah. Um, the whole the whole scene, like the blood, and then how it ends up going at the end with the explosion and the flamethrower and all that stuff. I personally think that that's the best scene in the movie. Just because mm-hmm. if you're if you want character build, and even if it's subtle character build, with how like all of them are feeling about each other and how you're building suspense and you know something crazy is about to happen. That scene's almost perfect build up to a huge climax. Yeah. One day on set after using the flamethrower, Kurt Russell uh, played a prank on John Carpenter by showing up in bandages saying he got burned. It freaked him out. A nice little on set prank. Uh, well, not nice. It's That's a rough one. <laughs> Probably scared the shit out of uh, Carpenter. Uh, he's probably like i'm taking it away from you forever now (laughs) i mean i'd be tempted to so after testing everyone gary starts so calm and relieved and uh but then he's like he's like "Uh, if you wouldn't mind i don't want to spend all winter tied to this fucking couch (laughs) just great scene yeah that that scene's been imitated by a lot of movies um a lot of tv shows have like blood test scene this movie influenced a lot of other movies and then we have the climax. I don't really have a lot to say about this. It The climax is one of the weaker parts of the film to me, just in my opinion. I mean, the part where Gary gets absorbed by Blair, uh, like where his fingers are just like digging under his skin is super gross, super gnarly. But the the scene with Russell versus, or McCready versus the thing, the Blair thing is is a little weak in my opinion. I, I I do like what he does. I just, I don't know. It felt like there needed more buildup or more like struggle, but he, he just jumps and rolls away, grabs his dynamite. He's like, yeah, well, fuck you too. And chucks the dynamite and runs and blows up the thing and blows up the entire complex. It had the same problem as the original is just the plan 
essentially went off without a hitch and there was no there wasn't a lot of tension or like this could fail or like what is it going to do if it fails kind of things you know yeah it did feel so on that point it did feel like they put a lot of effort in the movie on everything uh like up until the the blood testing and then everything after that it didn't feel as as heavy or as they really it just didn't feel as important than the other stuff it just yeah. felt like up until that point and then everything else kind of went down it is just slowly even with how the movie ends it it doesn't feel you know like like they like like what you've said <laughs> sorry well I- a big part of that was because um, because of the size of the Blair thing and because of what they were doing, they, they had to film the scene in stop motion. Incredibly detailed stop motion. By all accounts, looked incredible, but just didn't look quite real enough. They couldn't clean it up with CGI, like with a computer, because that, that kind of technology didn't exist yet. So, like, stop motion it has its place, but... It's really hard to get it as as fluid as you need it for it to come off realistic. So a lot of that scene was cut. There's only like two scenes with actual stop motion in the film. So I think I think they just had to go with what they had, and and it it works. It's just it's not very climactic to me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of older movies and even movies now to where they get they build and build. And everything up until the build, like build up to the climax, is so good. And then they hit the climax, and it just doesn't feel like it was worth it at that point. But I mean, it's yeah. the same thing where everybody's like, enjoy the journey, not the ending to what you're doing. And I think nobody enjoys the journey in a movie. We're all sitting there waiting for the climax. But if we like really spent the time and to enjoy the journey, you see oh, it was worth it, even though maybe it's not what we wanted to see at the end. It's certainly not the part that's remembered about this movie. So finally, there's the end. MacReady blows up the entire uh, facility. He's uh, he's out in the cold. It's night. He meets up with Childs. They share a drink and accept their fate of freezing to death. So there's a lot of theories about this scene, about if one or both or either of them is the thing. Fans point to the eye shine from the blood test scene. Childs doesn't have one. They also claim that you can't see his breath like you can with McCready. The eye shine is actually just technical difficulty. They they purposely didn't want eye shine on either of them. They wanted uh they wanted it to be completely ambiguous, but just because of the lighting and everything, Kurt Russell ends up kind of getting one. As far as the breath goes. They both actually have a visible breath. McCready's is a lot more pronounced because uh, before takes of uh, certain scenes, Kurt Russell would take a drag from a cigarette to make sure his breath was more visible. All their scenes they filmed, any indoor scenes, was filmed in a refrigerated studio. So it's like 40 degrees with a really high humidity so that you could see their breath. And Childs does have a breath, like a visible breath in this scene. But a lot of people claim he doesn't. I don't know if it's just because they remember it from like the older versions where it wasn't, it's not as clean as on the DVD. I really want to see the Blu-ray because I've heard that looks incredible. But I just have the 1998 DVD. Oh, you didn't watch the? Um, oh shoot, I should have. 
I wish I would have known. I could have really paid attention because I watched it in, you know, on a streaming service to where it was like the the highest quality. If I would have known, I could have looked and told you. <laughs> no, no, he he definitely has a breath. I I can see it on my DVD version. Oh, like I could. Uh, I mean, I could have told you how much like clearer it is if that makes sense. Oh yeah, that's fair. There's also a theory that McCready doesn't drink the J and B at the end of the at the end of the movie because it's actually gasoline from when they were making Molotov cocktails to burn the whole facility. And he knew that Childs was was the thing because he drank it without reacting, or or that a human Childs wouldn't share a drink anyways because it could be contaminated if, if McCready was the thing. There's all kinds of theories about the ending, like who who's good, who's bad, blah blah blah. But that's not really the point of the scene. They wanted this to be completely ambiguous to show that they're no better off when they started. They're actually much worse because there's still no trust. There's now no hope of escape. And there's no way of really even knowing if they succeeded in destroying the thing at all. Todd Ramsey mentions how ble- mentioned how bleak of an end it was to Carpenter. And uh, the studio also wanted to test a better ending. So they shot another scene where McCready is actually saved at the end. He's flown out. He survives. And a blood test confirms that he's still human. But that scene was scrapped because it just didn't work. It, it didn't test much better, and it also just didn't work to Carpenter, who who liked the more doomed ending. The scene and the whole movie kind of work as a metaphor for the Cold War. People not trusting each other, paranoia that anyone could be the thing or, you know, a communist, uh, much like the Red Scare. And in the end, they blow up the station, basically their entire world at the South Pole, ensuring that everyone will die. So much like the mutually assured destruction if the U.S. and the Soviet Union had ended up nuking each other. They sit there freezing soon to meet their fate, and that that main theme comes in. I love the ending. I I think it's appropriate because they're trying to stop it to where it doesn't spread to, like, other places. It's obviously, if it's in human form, it still gets frozen, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, since it... uh, they te- he technically saves the day, but he doesn't. He's not going to save himself. I mean, right. until I guess until they come up there and unthaw or whatever, because it still lives. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm I am personally totally fine with the ending, uh, like the actual ending. To go back just a little bit mm-hmm. to to where you were talking, like you brought up the uh, Robert Ebert and whatever brought up the how they kept splitting up and everything at the end, after the blood test thing, they split up again. That is kind of a, a little bit asinine to where they know that they're not, they shouldn't split up because it's almost intimate death. If you split up. Like, well, initially when, when they split up, when they leave childs, he has to like, someone has to stay and guard the generator. Otherwise they could all die. They have to go test Blair. Cause Blair's the only other, person the thing could imitate so it, it makes sense for them to bl- split up there but then the power goes out null sees childs running off childs claims it's to go find blair because he thinks he sees him but but that one kind of makes sense i mean like i don't i don't think Childs should have split off it could have been that he actually did get assimilated that would make more sense but then when they're down blown up the trying trying to set up the bombs and first gary's on his own and gets assimilated, and then Nulls just walks off and dies. Yeah, that one's pretty stupid. Yeah, it's just 
I like there there was no reason for them to not be with McCready. Yeah, they kind of I, I don't know at at that point to where you build up and they had all of that to where they were get it together and they do the blood test and everything and then they continue to do that. I feel like in the movie you do kind of you need to like learn as you go and not make the same mistakes, but they kept doing the same thing. I don't that's yeah. that's just me that like thinking about it now kind of rubs me the wrong way. But, That's understandable. Uh, but with that, back to the actual ending and everything. Uh, I think the bleak ending is totally fun. I don't I like. How else do you end it other than the other way that you said it? There's nothing. Oh, he's saved. They're going to make a sequel. Was he even thinking about a sequel? You could have made a. You can make an entirely new sequel with a whole new cast doing a whole new scary thing. You don't. All you need is the monster. You don't need the people. Yeah. Instead, they made a pretty dog shit prequel. And the thing is, like, this, this prequels usually don't work because we know what happens because we see the people that, like, sur- would have survived because they're in the regular movie. So, like, prequels don't work. In this movie, we know that nobody, like, survives from the Norwegian camp. So, what's the point of showing it? Just like, we, we all know how it ends is the dog runs to the American camp. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just for money and for people that wanted to see it. I don't know. Yeah. So, thankfully, despite its absolute panning when it was in theaters, the film found a second life on home video. And it's it came out in the early days of surround sound. And The Thing was one of the first films to be marketed specifically for the surround sound. Like, it had really aggressively directional surround sound, especially in the opening helicopter scene. So, video files just ate it up. And as time passed, cinema continued to advance, both artistically and scientifically and creatively. People slowly began to change their opinion on the thing. Critics going back and reviewing it have a much better opinion of it now than they did back in the day. And it's now widely considered one of the scariest and best horror movies ever made. A lot of filmmakers ended up saying that it was a huge inspiration. Tarantino said it really inspired uh, Reservoir Dogs. And then he also kind of made his own version of the thing by making the Hateful Eight. You know, he's got Kurt Russell in a lead role. He's got Ennio Marconi uh, doing the score. And it's got all that feeling of isolation and, like, somebody's an imposter. And obviously, Among Us is hugely inspired by this and Alien. So, like, this this movie's very much outgrown its initial feelings. And it's just one of my favorite movies. So I'm really glad we got to review it. No, yeah. Overall, as a horror movie and sci-fi and everything, it's wonderful. Like, going back and watching it, it's very entertaining. It's very scary. Very gory. To be honest, I love gory movies. I love John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, I think he did what? He did both of the first ones, and then after that, he didn't direct anymore? Or did he even direct the second one? I think he just did the first yeah. one. But, I mean, the first one's still probably my favorite. So, like, I mean, I love his stuff. Escape from uh, New York, New York was amazing. So, like, mm-hmm. his stuff is really good, and this movie is good. Regardless of, like, what the old reviews or whatever says, like, you can see now that there's a reason why this movie stuck around and what it did. Like it, it's it's a fun movie. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. It is really good, and I really enjoyed it. I got pretty much nothing but nice things to say about it. I 
hugely influential, holds up incredible compared to a lot of... This thing holds up better than a lot of 90s movies, a lot of 2000 movies, a lot of 2010 movies have aged worse than this. Yeah, it's just a, a fantastic time. And and special uh, special effects-wise, like besides the few things that you said the other stuff they could they would pass off for today's they're that's how good those scenes are yeah rob botine stan winston and and their employees just incredible work we 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 need to we need to see more things like that like I, i really enjoy gory horror movies and to be honest there hasn't been I guess there's probably been the thing is to find gory horror movies now because it's a very niche scene. Um, they don't like you're not going to see a lot of blockbuster horror movies anymore. Like you'll get a couple here and there, but if you want to see them, you have to look for them like directly in independent movies. And then even, yeah. even then they're like, it's so hard to track down and find good ones. Yeah, the, that's the main thing. Is like, there's plenty of them, but a lot of them are not good. And like, most of the big budget horror movies are these fucking uh, ghost stories. I'm so tired of ghost stories. Like, I, I I love alien horror or just like monster horror creature features. I'd like more of those or or uh, or like uh, slasher films. Like, just I'm so sick of ghosts. Mm. And I guess there's a new The Thing being remade again. I don't know if COVID has put that on the back burner or whatever, but uh, allegedly there's a new version coming out soon. That's interesting. I don't. I, I'm honestly tired of remakes. We, we. I want people. I want directors and writers and stuff to make something new. I know there's a lot of like fear into making something new. It's better like. There's a lot less risk in making old stuff because you already know that it works and know that it's going to have a following. But I'm I want to see new stuff. There is a time and place for remakes. John Carpenter's The Thing is a remake. Every now and then you can get a really good one, but I I just don't see someone doing this better. No, no. Even 40 years later, with all the CGI, all the budget, whatever you want to throw at it, I just I don't see them beating it story-wise even i don't see where you would even go or change it would just be oh it's the same thing and then they remake the monster a little bit better but like well maybe uh, uh maybe like that's what well, that's what i'm saying like uh, the whole story would have to change it would be like it would be totally different i think it's perfect how it is <sighs> Well, Kevin, we've been going for two hours. I think we should wrap this up. Do you have any last things to say? Well, I can say it's your fault that we've been going for two hours and you absolutely love these movies, or this <laughs> movie in particular, and I'm very happy that I got to hear your thoughts on it. I, I love the movie. And I'm glad we talked about it. Next episode's uh, going to be a different kind of gross, so that'll be exciting too. Other than that, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot of content pertaining to the episodes and we interact with you. So make sure to hit us up on Twitter. We're at what underscore we underscore consume. And on Instagram, it's at what we consume podcast. Bye-bye.